remember the time that uh, we had a neighbor on our block where I grew up who, who passed away. And this particular family was one that our family had for quite a number of years actually had a conflict with. That conflict was probably a little bit their fault and a little bit our fault. But the father's passing left things really weird. I was no longer living there at the time, and I hadn't talked to this family for many years at this point. But the widow actually requested that she could talk with me. I wasn't a, a pastor guy yet, uh, but she knew that I had been to seminary. Though it was a very scary thing, it was also a healing thing, the walk from my childhood home to her home. I had, uh, it had probably been almost two decades, I think, since there wasn't some animosity that had been there. And I was just the youngest kid in the family, and my last recollection, really, of interaction was primarily uh, through my having been a little boy who used to ride his skateboard through their front yard. Now here I was at the door in their moment of grief. We sat at the table and I saw in their home evidences of their very real faith in Christ. She spoke of how through those last years she and her husband used to read the Bible together every day and pray together every day. We talked for a long time and we shared a very, very sweet fellowship and we prayed together before I left. Before I left, she asked if I would be willing to help lead the memorial service for her husband of some 40 plus years. I felt so humbled and so privileged by that opportunity. And as I left, I couldn't quite decide if the Lord was more blessing her or blessing me or maybe just doing some great work for both of these families. When we follow the Lord Jesus, we never quite know where He will take us. And we often end up going places that we never quite planned on or thought possible. This morning for our regular study, we're going to look at a passage that we briefly got to touch on one of the days at Vacation Bible School this week here in Matthew 14. Here in this passage, we see how Christ calls us. He calls me and he calls you to go places that we never thought possible. Pick up in Matthew 14. I'll start reading in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. 
Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. First, this morning, we need to notice that there is someone worth following. There is someone worth following. Take a look at the authority that Christ demonstrates in this passage of how he leads tenderly, but firmly, wisely, and always with a bigger picture in mind. Notice how he directs his disciples. It's there in verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. They have just experienced the feeding of more than 5,000 with a couple of little fish and a paltry five loaves. A miracle has happened on the hillside. And he says, okay, it's been a good day. Time for you guys to go ahead and head out. Get in that boat, make your way across. I'll meet you on the other side. Wasn't the disciples' desire, apparently. In fact, by the Greek that's used here, the intimation, the understanding is that there might even have been some resistance. Doesn't matter, ultimately, the details of that because we're not let into that, nor do we need to know. It's just clear that Christ himself is leading. And isn't that someone you want to follow who has the authority to speak into your life and to speak and to guide you even in ways that maybe you're not ready for yet? Next, I want you to look at how he dismisses the crowds, 23. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. I'm sure having seen the miracle of the fish and having heard his incredible teaching that day on the hillside, the people couldn't get enough. And now their bellies are filled. They have no need. Let's hang out here. Where else would we want to be but with you? You have the words of eternal life but he has to compel them to leave. We know from parallel passages recording the same incident that the people actually at this point were so excited by being well-fed, a guy who can create food out of nothing, this is a good leader. This is somebody we want to be in charge. And so they had desires to make him king. They knew he preached the coming of a kingdom. Just wasn't quite the kingdom that they had in mind. Not yet. What we see in Christ's authority in this is that he is no man's lackey. He has the authority to tell you or to tell me or to tell anyone what to do. His vision is not temporal or earthbound. He is not worried about the next moment. He always moves at perfect pace with all of eternity in view. His scope is boundless. His plans are not small or temporary or foolish, his ways are wise, and he always acts with purpose. There is someone worth following. Notice also his authority and also demonstrating his worth and ultimate value in how he controls nature. Here it is at the end of verse 25. This is the part for which this entire scene is named. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The Romans divided the night into four watches of three hours each from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., so this is some point in the wee hours between 3 and 6 a.m. The disciples had been out in the boat on the sea the entire night, probably fighting the storm the entire time. Jesus chooses this opportunity to come to them. Jesus, and we talked about this with the kids at VBS, this was so fun, how could Jesus get from that hilltop on the land to this place way out in the middle of the sea? Answer, any way he wants to, because he's God. 
He can do anything he wants at any time. He could say, you know what, I think I'll just snap my fingers and show up in the boat. He could say, you know what, I've been thinking about it, helicopter. I think now is a good time to invent the helicopter. He could do whatever he wants. He decides to go ahead and walk on the water to demonstrate that he has complete control of nature. By the way, there are passages in the Old Testament that state quite clearly that it is God himself and God alone who walks upon the waves. If you're a good Jewish fisherman, you know a little bit about what it means if a dude comes wandering across the lake. It says something to you. Now, whether he suspended gravity, whether he changed his density, whether he changed the density of the very water beneath his feet at each step, I have no idea. He could have done it any way he chose to. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. For him, it's literally a piece of cake. He who spoke all of creation into existence. It's so cool because he's God and he can do whatever he wants to do. And that is someone worth following. We also notice, although it's practically a side note, but it is clearly meant for emphasis, verse 32, a second miracle. When they got into the boat, that's he and Peter, the wind stopped. Don't read that as a, oh, the clouds slowly dispersed and then the winds gently died down. No, they got into the boat and the storm was done because Jesus was done with it at that point. He is demonstrating his perfect and impeccable control in timing every moment, every step of the way. There is someone worth following. Would you like to follow someone like that? Fourthly, I just have you notice to look at how he does great works, not only with nature, but how he does great works through others. Yes, that's the one I skipped over. It's the one you expected when I said another miracle. It's there in verse 29. And Jesus said to Peter, come, and Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came toward Jesus. Question, is that Peter doing a miracle? Absolutely not. It's Jesus doing another miracle, really three in this short passage then, right? Jesus walking, Peter walking, and then the winds and the waves obeying. Here what we see is not only the power of the Lord Jesus himself as master of all nature to do great works but something terribly encouraging for those of us who want to follow him. That he is able to do the impossible even through his followers. By this time, we know from Matthew chapter 10, these 12 disciples would have already had the experience of doing miracles. They would have been sent out to proclaim the coming of Christ. The one we've been waiting for, people, is here. The Messiah is now come. We've met him. Prepare your hearts for him, the disciples were sent out to say. And in order to authenticate his message, he bestowed upon those 12 disciples, at least for this one temporary mission and on other occasions, the ability to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. And they went and they did it, by the way, and they came back and they just pulled their hair out with excitement. They jumped up and down and they said, oh my goodness, you won't believe what we did. And Jesus says, yeah, I kind of think I could believe it because I did it, and you did it through me. Here, Christ works a miracle with and through Peter. You know, how many disciples could say to the rest, 
yeah, but who was it that walked on water? I mean, Peter could win every argument among these guys after this point, right? The point is Christ is leading this entire scenario by His works, by the delegation of His authority, by His demonstration of His authority. And He is doing His good work and demonstrating His character, who He is and what He is worth in all that He does. The disciples themselves, who sometimes in the Gospels are demonstrated to be extremely dull, extremely non-understanding. Um, That's not a great word. Sorry, it's all I got right now. Clueless. Even they get this one. Do you notice how the whole scene ends? It's with them getting the points. Verse 33, and those who are in the boat worshipped Jesus, saying, you are certainly God's son. Their response after all of this was not to gather around Peter and slap him on the back and go, dude, that was so cool. That was amazing that you did that. No, they fell on their face. and They said, surely we're in the presence of the Son of God. They understood. There's someone worth following. Now, Christ's work here with Peter then leads to our second takeaway from this morning. And that is, walking with Jesus is not boring. Walking with Jesus is not boring. I see a few of you smile and nod your head. That's the last thing it is, because he invites us to a great adventure. I want you to notice, going back through our passage, that Christ's followers here don't make their plans, do they? Again, 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. It wasn't that they thought, you know, this is really cool, Jesus, and I dig the way you did that miracle. Hey, I have some advice for what we should do next. Didn't work that way when you walked with the Lord of the universe. You can make requests. You can ask questions. You can even point out your opinion. But at the end of the day, he knows what he's doing. And he is doing what is not boring. Understand that he who has ultimate and complete authority over the storm and stopped it at a moment knew that it was coming and sent them out into the middle of it, all for his purpose. Apparently, they will struggle for some time, maybe even a good nine hours of the night in the dark. The point is their path is not painless, is it? Those of you who know what it is to know Christ and follow him, question is his path in your life one that is painless? I know you'd say not. But it is not boring. For Christ has great purpose. Purpose even in and through the pain, and that is someone worth following. Not only is it that his followers don't make the plans, but his followers along the way, following his plans, his followers witness mighty works. His followers witness mighty works. Already we have seen the walking on the water in the end of the storm here. But what is sweet is what we see with Peter. 
pardon me, what we see is sweet is what we see that the disciples get to witness what Christ does with Peter. If you live your, eye, live your life with your eyes on Christ, and if you follow where he leads, not your will, then along the way, yes, there may be pain, but yes, there will also be wonders. The disciples see something that night that I guess, I don't know, you think they may have let some people know that they got to see that? You think maybe they were excited about the fact that they were there when that happened? You think Peter maybe bragged once or twice? It is sweet because if you walk with Christ, he'll let you see do things, see you do things. He'll let you see him do things in people's lives that you'll rejoice over. Things that you'll be excited to tell about. Things that you'll look back on and you'll say, you know, that was what was important. That is what lasted. He lets you see him do mighty works. Finally, notice his followers get to take part in the mighty works. Peter here gets to take direct part in one of these works, right? I wonder if uh, Peter ever dreamt in his entire life of doing anything like this. You think? I seriously doubt it. How, how, did this, how does this even come into your conception? It's impossible. Who thinks, yeah, one day I will just walk on waves, won't I? No, Peter never dreamed of this, and yet he's going to find himself doing it. But that's how it is with those who follow Jesus. You never quite know what he may have for you next. He can give you boldness, where your whole life, all you've ever thought is, man, I just want to run away from this situation. And next thing you know, I'm doing it, Lord. I'm doing it. He can make you care about people in your life that maybe you've only despised in the past. He can make you grateful when your whole life you've been presumptuous because things have come easy. He can do work in your heart that today you would say is impossible and you will look back one day and you will say with him, it was easy. It was easy for him and it was definitely not boring. Notice, and we talked about this with the kids this week, and that was fun. Notice that Peter doesn't just see Jesus out there and then jump out and run to him. Did you catch what I skipped in that recitation? What did I skip? Peter pauses and calls to Jesus and asks. He asks, Lord, truly, if that's you, then bid me come. Call me to your side. Peter asked Jesus to summon him. Do you think he was probably still yet a bit scared at the crazy waves? Oh, I have to think the answer is obviously yes. They've, they've labored all night against them. And in a moment, he'll be afraid again so much that he will sink. But for a brief moment, he locks eyes with Jesus. And that's enough. That's enough. There is a thrill in that moment that overcomes the, the crash of the waves, that overcomes the possibility of drowning and, and all of the darkness and the sinister nature of that moment. And he says, all I know is I see him and he ain't boring. He is beautiful. And if he will but call me, I will go to him. That's what I want. Peter's willing to attempt the impossible. This is trust, right? 
This is trust that's, that's built on what Peter has seen of Christ's character. If it really is you, that's the keynote. If you leave with nothing else today, I would encourage you that that would be the one thing you'd write down and the one thing you'd remember. Lord, if it really is you, because following him is not boring. Following him is always worth it. And if it really is him, then the rest is easy, right? Peter is also wholly aware at this moment that this will work only if Christ allows it. Peter is not even taking the lead at this moment. The guy who's best known for foot-in-mouth disease, the guy who's best known for his impetuosity both to the good and to the bad, the guy whom Christ will in a couple of chapters commend for seeing through all the political whatever stuff to saying, you got it right, you know who I am, Peter. And then just a couple of lines later, he will say, Peter, get behind me, because those words are from the devil. That's impetuous, Peter. Even that guy says, only if you will lead. Lord, if it really is you, then you call me, and then I'll come. This is dependence. It's built on what he has seen of Christ's will in all of the months that he has walked with him, and he knows that his Character is impeccable, and his will is perfect. It is his character, and it is his will, men and women, that will make you a lifetime disciple of Jesus Christ, or else you won't be, because nothing else has the power to do that. Nothing else through the storms of your life, through the months of highs and years of lows of your life will be enough, but the character of Christ and the will of Christ for you to be a lifelong follower of his, but it won't be boring. It's a rich adventure. I have never known a faithful follower of Christ, no matter how obscure that man, no matter how unknown that woman, who has lived a life that is boring, period. I have often known many of these to look back with wonder and say, I'm amazed that God did that with me. I'm amazed. Walking with Jesus is not boring. Third, let's notice that followers of Jesus are being transformed. Followers of Jesus are being transformed. What's happening in the course of all of this is Christ is at pains to train his disciples. He knows one day he will leave. And these 12 will be the backbone. They will be the very kernel of the, the church of God on the face of the earth. There's a larger group than these 12, made up of some 70-odd, and a larger group beyond that. But these 12 will be the primary ones. And so Jesus is training them. If you keep that in mind, it will help you understand how to read the passage appropriately when you come to what otherwise would seem like some very negative things. First, though, let's notice this. I want you to see how Peter wanted to go to Jesus. Again, 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Do you know what Christ loves? It's when one of his children turns to him and says, Lord, if it's truly you, if this is truly your will, then just command. I just 
want your will. I don't care the pain. I don't care the sacrifice. I don't care the waiting or the time or the whatever. If it's you, you speak and I will. Just command me, Lord. What a beautiful thing. Peter wanted to go to Jesus. We talked in those little groups uh, throughout the week about how in this moment, Peter just wanted to be with Jesus. And I think at some level, he wanted to be like Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is going to walk on water. I, can I do that like you, Lord? That would be great if, if it's your will. And it is in this desire, the desire to be with him and the desire to be like him, that Peter is making waves. Why? Because that desire is glorifying to God. Peter is showing the world in that moment how good Jesus is. Peter, you might drown. Peter, there's some fairly important issues going on immediately all around you. Peter, this is dangerous. I don't care. I just want to be with him. I just want to be like him. And Jesus is using this impetuous, imperfect follower to demonstrate how good he is. Just like he does with you. When you, follower of Christ, go through hardship and you say, Lord, whatever else may come, would you just let me be with you? Lord, whatever else may come out of this, would you just make me more like you? That is a training. The fact that God creates that desire in Peter's heart is itself a gift, right? That you and I would even, in my puny little heart and selfish little soul, would ever even come to the place where I would think thoughts like that? That comes from God. That, that, that comes from God. When Peter is more focused on Jesus than the storm, than he is the storm, then he trusts him unquestionably, and he demonstrates how good Christ is. See, Peter wanted to go to Jesus. Next, see, Peter lost focus on Jesus, and he sank, right? Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. Question, can you see wind? No, but you read that and you know exactly what it means. The point is the word seeing. Because that demonstrates where Peter's focus is in that moment, right? He noticed the giant waves, and he heard the crashing, and he felt the foam, and he knew the, the blustery you know, gusts upon his body in that moment. And he thought, whoa, what am I doing? This is crazy. This is impossible. Dumb people would do this. I don't want to do this because he turned his eyes off Christ. And you get the rest of that sermon point, don't you? Where you're looking makes all the difference. But even in this, I want you to notice that Peter did not fail to show how good Jesus was. He did not fail to glorify God. Even at this moment, he did not fail to make waves, as it were. Why? Because Peter... Even in his moment of unbelief, he still knew who to ask for help. And friends, that is a very encouraging truth. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. 
This is, I'm pretty sure, the shortest prayer in all of the Bible and quite possibly the most effective because it gets answered irrevocably and immediately. Lord, save me. And Jesus stretches down a hand to lift him up. Is that not encouraging when in your moments in lack of faith, in my moments where focus is wrong, that I can just know enough to know, okay, messed up. Oh, God, help. And he's like, I can answer that. That's, that's easy. That's what I do. This is not an eloquent prayer. It's not rehearsed. It's not done for appearances. You know, I think... I think I'm going to say this, and the guys in the boat are going to be so impressed at my faith, right? That's exactly what Peter's doing. No, Peter is scared to death. You think he's a fisherman. The dude spent his life on the Sea of Galilee. He's got to be able to swim. I mean, come on. No. No. He's in over his head. This prayer was brief. It was urgent. It was helpless. It was genuine, and that is beautiful. Peter was convinced of his need, and so he looked to the only Savior there is. Do you and I do the same? Friend, the question for you today is, have you ever done the same? If not, then maybe today is the day to come and see your need to see that your sin has created a separation between you and a God who is good, who desires to lead you faithfully, who is worth following, who creates and prepares for you a, a life that is a wonderful adventure, though not easy. He never promised that. But if you would turn from sin and turn to him, oh, you will be transformed. Just as he is progressively doing here with Peter and all of the disciples through this little incidents. Maybe today you'd say, you know what, I've been fighting and I've been running. Lord, today I'm willing to admit I lay down all my defenses. Will you receive me? Lord, save me. You think you can try a prayer that simple? If it's urgent, if it's earnest, if it's genuine, I think the Savior knows and he's more than good enough. For those of us who know Christ, this is the reminder of the one who has proven himself to us so many times to have answered that prayer, hasn't he? How many times do I think I'm going into a situation that I've sort of got it worked out? I've planned, I've prepared, I had a good night's sleep, I had a power bar earlier, pretty much ready to take on the world, slept at a Motel 6, right? Only to find out very, very quickly, I'm in over my head. He rescues. He rescues fools. He rescues rebels. He rescues from sin and from shame and from selfishness. I know because I'm proof. And so are many of you in this room. He does not require eloquence or merit or knowledge, only that we turn from sin and turn to him and ask for help and understand that he is the only Savior and he can save. Notice then on the heels of this, the response of Christ, who was terribly gracious, verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand 
and took hold of him. He didn't make Peter work for it. Hey, look, why don't you tread water for a few minutes and demonstrate to me, you know, did, did you go to synagogue last week, right? Have you been, have you been giving regularly, you know, whatever. No, there was none of that. He just saved him. Jesus is merciful even to Peter in the moment of his failure, even in the moment when he had turned his eyes away and was overcome by a wrong focus. Peter wanted to go to Jesus. Peter lost focus on Jesus and sank, but even in that, he learned. Finally, Peter was being trained in the heart and the faithfulness of Jesus. The point of this passage is not, look at the cool things Peter can do. The point of the passage is, look at what Jesus does in the lives of his followers. Look at what Jesus does because of who he is. Peter was being trained, and the disciples are being trained. With that in mind, let's read the rest of verse 31. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of Peter and said to him, You of little faith, why do you doubt? Question. Comment. Then a question. Comment. How you read that verse makes a huge difference. Question. How do you read that verse? You of little faith, why did you doubt? I would argue that many of us are tempted to read that and see only in it disappointment and rebuke. I think there is a gentle correction there, but I think the right reading of this passage, and I think the rest of the passage proves it, is not that Jesus desires out of his wrath to express his disappointment in the failure that Peter is to him. No. As a father, he speaks to him and he says, Why? My son, I was right here. I was within arm's reach. Why did you bother to doubt? And that's how he trains his followers. When, he fall, when we fall, he catches us. When we cry out, he picks us up. When we say, Lord, I've messed up, please forgive. Lord, save. He says, of course I forgive, because by my blood, you have trusted in me and become my child. I have promised ever to do so. And so here I am. But let me ask, why did you bother to doubt? <laughs> there is no answer to that, and there needs not be one because it is the lingering question that calls us back. He is so good, why do we ever doubt? He is so sufficient, why do I ever look elsewhere? He is so faithful, well, why do I ever think I need something outside of him? Here I believe even in this question, Jesus is showing Peter his love. I believe that, why? Because he knows that Peter has just been filled with profound faith, has just been enamored with the presence of Christ. And this is what Jesus wants for him all the time. Do you know what the great news is? If your Lord and Father ever rebukes you, it's because he earnestly desires your very best. It's because he desires to show you that he is eminently faithful and good and that he is entirely trustworthy every step of the way. And that is a good thing for him to remind me of. He here is showing Peter his love in that I believe Jesus is actually gently grieved. 
in the best way. Because what he wants for Peter is so much more. And do you think that might be true of the rest of his followers as well? Frank, why didn't you trust me? I get it that you didn't. But man, I had some other good things. Let's go from here. And Jesus is showing Peter his love because Jesus is preparing. Jesus is preparing Peter to be a man who in his lifetime will have to endure persecutions. He will have to speak boldly for Christ. The Jewish leaders will seek his life. The Roman officials will seek his life. Peter will die a martyr, crucified upside down for the sake of the crime of believing in Jesus Christ. And Jesus knows it. Oh, Peter, why'd you doubt? I am preparing you for what I have for you. Question, do you think Peter today in heaven drops his gaze, kicks the dirt and goes, I don't know why Jesus did all that stuff with me. I hate it. No way. He goes, thank you, Lord. I can't believe you chose me to do the stuff you did with me. The beatings and the scourgings and the persecutions and, and, and all of the opportunities you gave me and the lives I saw changed and dying for you, Lord, I'm not worthy. So if you're going to crucify me, don't kill me like you killed my Savior. Crucify me upside down. Put my head where his feet were because I am not worthy. Oh, Lord, thank you that you would even do this with me. There's someone worthy to be followed. And following Jesus ain't boring. And followers of Jesus get transformed. Jesus knows how to take an impetuous, loud mouth and make him a solid rock for other people to stand on. What do you think he could do with you and me? Jesus knows how to take needy, confused, clueless followers like those guys in the boat and like people like you and me and make us into faithful, joy-filled, bold servants who show the world how good he is and make waves. And as he transforms lives, you know what? It all points to his glory. Nobody walks away and says, man, that is a great woman. That is a great man. They go, wow, person has pretty good God, because that's what they said of Peter that day. And just like the passage ends, when he does his great work of transformation in you and me, when we choose to follow, those who look on simply say to him, truly, you are the son of God. Why don't you stand with me and we'll close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you, who have created it all, planned it all. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming, for coming to be human, for coming to live a perfect life, for coming to do miracles and show how good you are and then take upon yourself my sin and our sin. Would you help me today be emboldened by Peter and by what you did in him? Would you help us today, Lord Jesus, be encouraged by your good and wise and adventurous and glorious
questions for us and be unafraid to follow you no matter what risks it might take. Would you help us to have settled deeply in our soul today? Who is our Lord? Who is our master? Who is our great savior that we might not doubt? Father, if any are here whom you have brought today who do not yet know how willing you are to save, would you grant them the grace to do business with you, to speak to you those profoundly eloquent words of Peter's prayer, Lord, save me. And I ask, Father, that you do a miracle. You do a supernatural work in their lives and they would be born again as children of God, that your Holy Spirit would come in, transform their affections, give them new eyes, and begin to do the work of lifetime change to transform them into rock-solid, joy-filled, bold, adventurous followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, only you can do it. Friend, if that's you today, we ask you would do business with him because only he can do it. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for all your work. We praise you for guarding us this week and for giving us a rich time. And we ask, help us to just enjoy food and good gifts and fellowship and a beautiful day today. And in so doing, to thank you for it and show how good you are. All to your glory, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.